Welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of the Taking a Breath podcast. First of all, I want to say thank you for joining us for today's conversation. And before we get into the interview, I want to give a quick shout out to our new website, flow.page slash Parker Mays. If you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, head over there. It not only has where you can find the audio and video highlights for the podcast, but more than that, there's a join the community link where you can go if you're 16 to 24, we're looking for young leaders to join a community interested in personal growth. If you're in that age range and you're interested in checking out more, head there, flow.page slash Parker Mays. Click that link, join the community, fill out your information, and we will get you connected to Zooms, group chats, emails. Uh, we want you to be a part of it. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Taking a Breath Podcast with Parker Mays. Alrighty, everybody, welcome back to another episode. I'm excited today because I have Mr. Robert Klima joining me. He is the founder and the chairman of the board of directors for CDFI, that's Children with Disabilities Fund International. It's a nonprofit based out of Virginia that also operates in Jamaica and Kenya, helping with both education and healthcare for children with disabilities worldwide. I've recently gotten to help volunteer, um, doing a little bit with their marketing and um, their student intern team. So just really grateful to be able to have you on, Mr. Klima, today, and would love for you to share a little bit about you and about CDFI. As you pointed out, I'm an attorney. My practice has now gone on for 42 years, and I'm really just doing adoption work at this point. I uh, don't know how much longer I'll do that, but uh, as far as the nonprofit is concerned, the primary thing is that I am the father of a severely disabled child. My son, Ethan, who is my youngest child, was born in 1990, and his birth changed our lives totally, completely upset everything. Prior to that time, I'd had no real experience with disabled children, and I didn't know what to do. It turned out to be, of course, an extremely difficult road to walk. Parents who care for severely disabled children know what I'm talking about, but if you haven't walked that path, you would never know. In the United States, we have lots of resources, and I'm very thankful for the resources which were made available to us as a family. But during the long, hard years of raising my son and my other three children, I became aware that in developing countries, a totally different situation existed. I heard people give reports about children who were treated abominably. I remember a thing I saw in the news about Romania, for example, where disabled children were tied down all day, left under horrible circumstances, abused in many ways. And then I heard from missionaries that they had found similar situations in other countries. I'm thinking particularly of Indonesia that had come to my mind at that time. In 2009, I found myself in a situation where I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip with a uh, church in my area. And I went to the organizational meeting. They were going to go to the country of Jamaica. And I knew that they spoke English. <laughs> I'd been on a mission trip to Nicaragua and couldn't do much because I didn't speak the language. Well, I went to this meeting and the man who was describing what was going on was showing pictures of other trips they had taken to Jamaica. And he showed pictures of West Haven Children's Home, which is a home for severely disabled children in Jamaica. And he said, this was a very, very sad situation. 
we couldn't do anything, so we'll probably not go there again. So I raised my hand and said, that is where I want to go. And they were very gracious, and they said, if God is calling you to go there, then we want to make it happen, and they did. So in March of 2009, I first set foot at West Haven Children's Home and was absolutely blown away by what I saw. It was sad. It was heart-rending. Children were lying unattended on mats all day with flies all over their faces. They were lying in their own filth because nobody could change their diapers. I later learned that the reason for that was they didn't have any new diapers to give them. They were also understaffed. It just looked like a place where children were waiting to die. And I knew I had to do something. The only thing I could think of doing was to gather together uh, some people who had skills like occupational therapists, physical therapists. My daughter, Beth, was a special education teacher. So I took a team down there and we went down in December of 2009. It was a great experience for everyone. And we took teams down several times over the next several years. But it soon became apparent that uh, when we left, everything returned to the way it had been before. And so I knew that we needed to make a systemic change. And that meant a lot of long-term planning for things that would take time to develop. And one thing led to another, and we've made a huge change there. I'm curious, so we, you mentioned, uh, and I know that you guys are operating now in both Jamaica and Kenya. Kenya, that location started in about 2017, if I'm remembering correctly. A little earlier than that. Okay. You had visited Jamaica, had started to really plant yourselves there. When did that shift happen to then also being a part of the community in Kenya? Well, the way that happened was this. When you start a nonprofit, of course, you're going to create a website. So we created a website. The problem of children with disabilities in developing countries is one of the largest unmet needs in the world. Most people don't know about it because it really is a silent suffering. These children can't speak for themselves and they don't have advocates. So when the website went up, of course, people all around the world found the website because they were searching for help. I have received pleas from no less than 20 different countries of people who are trying to help disabled children in those countries and all they need is some money wisely spent to help them to do what they're doing. Unfortunately, we are such a low-funded organization, we're so small, we're all volunteer, that I have to tell these people I don't have any money to help them. But in the midst of all of that, I was contacted by a woman in Kenya who has an interesting story herself as to how she got called to do this. And I told her I couldn't help her because I didn't have any money, but she wouldn't let it go. She started coming back and say hello again, and she just kept making the plea over and over again. I wasn't going to send money to the other side of the world without knowing what was going on. Uh, and we had had some contact with the well-known organization World Vision, which is a Christian worldwide relief organization. So one day I said, well, I wonder uh, if World Vision has a presence in Kenya. So I went to my computer and I typed in World Vision Kenya and up came a big website. It turns out they have a huge presence in Kenya. And they had the email address of the uh, president of World Vision Kenya. So I thought, what the heck? I wrote him an email. And uh, I said, 
you don't know me from Adam, but there's this organization. How'd you like to go check them out? And he said, sure. And I got back a quarter inch thick professional evaluation of the charity. We didn't pay a penny for it. World Vision did it purely out of the goodness of their hearts. It gave us the basis to believe that we could send some money there. And we began, but it was small at first. And then I knew I had to go there personally. And so in December of 2016, I and my son-in-law, Jeff, made the trip there to make the personal evaluation. And what we found was satisfactory. We formed very close relationships. World Vision has continued to provide third-party accountability. I believe very strongly in that principle, that you need an unrelated third party to evaluate it in order to make sure that everything is completely above board, that there is no opportunity for fraud, that everything is wisely spent. And we have similar partners in Jamaica, by the way. Yes. So we're able to do the work in both countries with that kind of accountability. So there's a couple of things there that I, I wanted to mention because I think that story is so incredible. One, the fact that you guys, when you reached out to World Vision, that that was the response that came back, the evaluation, the support. I think for young people, because this is something that I hear a lot, there's such a hesitation to reach out to people because they feel like, or we feel like, I've been guilty of this as well, that oh, well, I have nothing to offer in return, or I am not at a place where I can, you know, I'm, at, I'm not at the same level, um, or things like that. And I think that story is so encouraging to me, and I'm sure to listeners, because just that effort to reach out and share your story, what's happening, this opportunity now, they're this accountability partner, they're helping. So I think there's so much value. And even for just one individual, even if it's something as simple as learning from someone who you view as so far ahead of you or those types of things, I think there's so much value in just the, the simple act of reaching out. That's true, Parker. And I, I want to add to that. Most Americans don't think a lot about the problem of poverty around the world. Frankly, we waste an extraordinary amount of money in the United States on frivolities on fancy cars or houses or vacations or any number of other things. Um, we don't realize how rich we are compared to the rest of the world. But the truth is a very, very small amount of money by American standards is a huge amount of money in these other countries. And if it is spent wisely, a huge difference can actually be made. I believe that we have made a profound difference in the lives of 100 children in Jamaica and 200 children and their families in Kenya. Now, that's a drop in the bucket to world poverty. I get it. But it's important. And if everybody took on whatever they could do, we could make a bigger difference. So people should not think, well, who am I? I don't have any money. I can't do anything. Yes, you can. You have resources that people in other countries don't have, even if they're very minimal resources. Right now, we're trying to address the problem of the children in Kenya through a child sponsorship program. Because these are disabled children, they have greater needs. Therefore, the cost of sponsoring a child is a little bit more than it might be through organizations like World Vision or Compassion International. We've set it at $50 for each child. 
but that pays for school. Now, remember, the government does not provide school for disabled children like we have in the United States. They just say to the parents, we can't help you. And these are dirt poor people who live in mud huts without electricity and without water, who barely survive. And when they have a disabled child, they don't know what to do. So we pay the school fees to get them into appropriate schools. We pay for their medical care. We pay for wheelchairs or other orthotics. We pay for a lot of other needs that they may have. Recently, because the COVID crisis has struck the third world far worse than it struck the United States, most people don't realize that, people are literally starving in Kenya. But we've been able to provide emergency food aid. We've been able to provide seed and fertilizer so that they can grow their own food and uh, to make a real difference in their lives. And here's something else I want to say, if you'll give me the time to say it. I was there again in December of 2019. And some of these uh, mothers of these severely disabled children whose husbands were gone, who knows exactly where, but these women were living alone trying to care for a disabled child under incredible poverty. They began to gather together through very, very minimal resources and work as a team, as like a microenterprise team, doing very humble things, raising chickens or rabbits or some vegetables and things like that. And it was incredibly empowering to these women. If you could see how that gave them hope because they knew their child was safe in an appropriate school. These are women who had no choice but to leave the child unattended all day long while they went out to sell peanuts on the street corner to try to survive. Now they could know that the child was safe and they could bind together with other women to grow their own food and have a tiny, tiny little business it was empowering, Parker. If you could see what this did to these women and these families to have that, and how much money does that take by American standards? Very, very little. But what a profound difference it makes in the lives of those people. So I know Holly mentioned that, and, and you mentioned the child sponsor program, which I'm glad you did because that is something that I know is launching through CDFI. I'll have after the episode, vcdfi.org is their website please check it out. I wanted to put that so that I don't forget because there's so much information about it and, and ways that you can get involved, including that sponsorship program for listeners. So with this, uh, this business, the things that they're doing, Holly mentioned that there has been some struggle with COVID. Does that include some of these things that you're talking about that they have still been able to do? Or is some of that, has some of that shifted since COVID started? Well, I'm afraid it's really come to a halt. Because the little things they were able to do, um, they could no longer do. You know, COVID is an inconvenience to Americans, a life-threatening event to people in poor countries. And so we are just trying to maintain the status quo. We're going to have to try to get back to where they were before when this situation finally changes. I know she mentioned that you guys had some short-term missions, some of those um, trips down there that have gotten canceled, which, uh, and you know, it, it, it has to be that way, but it is, it's so hard right now. And um, she mentioned the relief that you guys had put out uh, over the past month or, or two in terms of, you know, asking for, for emergency donations. What types of things have you guys seen that, you know, when people are giving those emergency donations, is that going, you know, directly into these programs for the food and safety of 
these children directly or what types of things are you guys using um, these donations for, especially right now? That's a good question. First of all, let me say that CDFI is an all volunteer organization. That's actually quite unusual among charities. 95 to 96% of every dollar that comes in goes directly to the work of ministry. We've been able to keep all of our administrative costs to 4% or less. I challenge you to find another charity that can say that. But because we're all volunteer, we have a hard time getting things done as rapidly or as efficiently as you could do if you had a paid professional staff. But because we have been able to develop excellent program administrators in these two countries, we are able to work through them. So we have uh, hired three teachers and two nurses and established a school and a health clinic in Jamaica at the orphanage that did not exist before. Children were dying at a really unacceptable rate from minor things like tooth infections, believe it or not, things that should never cause a death. Since we were able to establish the health clinic and hire the nurses, that has largely come to a stop. We also have a, a director and a staff in Kenya as well that carries out the actual work. Now there, the children aren't in an orphanage. They're spread out over three large rural counties where nobody has cars. All the dirts are, the roads are dirt roads. You get to the mud hut by walking on a path through the woods. It's a difficult situation and they have six or seven staff people that take the relief aid directly to the people. So there's a budget for both countries. In addition to that, I have a long list of needs that they have. When we have the resources, we try to prioritize what's the need that we should meet next, and then we're able to do it. And we've made many changes to improve the circumstances, both at the orphanage in Jamaica and the lives of the people in Kenya, but we have to do them one by one as the money comes in. I think it's incredible. So A, and you mentioned this right at the beginning of that it's all volunteer run. To you, what is the biggest kind of driver for like all of these volunteers being able to come together and put, and I know you have a lot of people involved across the world. What is the biggest driver of having all these volunteers put towards this common vision, common goal? How do you see that playing out? I know that's something that people struggle with a lot is, okay, well, people are money motivated or people are, you know, driven just by, you know, this success. But, you know, for you guys, it's clear that it's more than that. Can you speak to that a little bit? I'd be happy to. Uh, the answer to your question is that we are a Christian organization. Now, that means that we are all believers in Jesus Christ, and we are doing what we're doing because we believe that God is calling us to do it. And that is the thing that unites us. Now, we ourselves are very concerned that everyone be a sincere believer, but we welcome help from anybody. One of my favorite stories, if I could just take a moment, is I received a phone call out of the blue from a woman one day who said, well, we'd like to go with you on one of your mission trips to Jamaica, but I want you to know that we're not Christians. And I said, well, I want you to know that we are. Now that we're over that, we'd love to have you come. <laughs> and they did. And they've turned out to be one of our biggest supporters. They're Jewish. Great. We have a wonderful relationship. So we're run as a Christian organization, but we welcome everybody who wants to help us. And that's an important distinction. 
But the people that we work with directly in both Jamaica and Kenya share our common faith. And I believe that this unity and this effectiveness could not be possible if that were not the case. I think that's incredible. People um, ask me a lot of times because I'm very open about it in these conversations that I, I am a Christian from a faith background. But there's always that struggle of, oh, you know, are people going to not listen or not, you know, get value from these conversations because of that? And my encouragement to people is always exactly what you just said. It's whatever background you're from, there are things that you can learn from people's experience, you know, no matter what your goals are, what uh, each listener's goals are. I think there's so much value in learning from experience. And not only, um, I was talking to a friend this week, not only your experience, but experience in general. I think there's just so much value. Can you talk to that a little bit um, from not only the mission trips, but how has the experience of seeing these things and participating in CDFI changed your perspective on leadership in general? Well, can I break that down into two questions? I'd be happy to answer the question as to how it's affected me, okay. but I also want to talk about how it's affected other people. As far as I am concerned, I tell people that once you have learned to love one disabled child, as I deeply love my son, then you find that you love all of them. So when I go to be with these severely disabled children, I can't tell you how much I love them. I would rather be among them, among the poor and the disabled, than among the rich Americans any day. And if I had the choice, that's where I would be. And let me tell you this, they are happier than almost anybody else I've ever met. Despite their circumstances, despite the fact that they have almost nothing, I find joy when I go there that I do not find among the well-to-do in America, who are all tied up with their riches and their possessions and their experiences and their jobs and all of these sorts of things. These people have nothing and they have a joy that we don't normally experience. I'm drawn to that and it's made a profound difference in my life. Now, as far as other people are concerned, we've been taking mission teams down to Jamaica since, 2010. I personally have been there in that one decade 33 times. I don't know how many, because it takes a long sustained effort to make a systemic change. I don't know how many teams we've taken. I'd guess somewhere around 20 probably. And we love to take teenagers as well as adults. And I can't tell you how many times teenagers have gone there, spent a week among these poor disabled children, and then said to me, now I know what I want to do with my life. I want to be a special education teacher. I want to be an occupational therapist. They found their calling when they went and spent time among these children. I don't know the consequences or the fruits of all of that, but it's remarkable. Two questions that I had out of that. One is the happiness. You mentioned this contrast, and I, I have heard that story a lot from missionaries. Um, I got a chance to go to Costa Rica um, a few years back and, and saw that. From your perspective, because you have seen it so much, what really fuels that happiness? Well, uh, I suppose the short answer is it's love. When I go into the orphanage in Jamaica, there are many children, for example, that have cerebral palsy. 
And because they didn't receive the treatment that they should have received upon birth, as you may know, most of these children are born with cerebral palsy. And if they don't get the care they need, then their bodies are frozen in position. So it, it's a very overwhelming thing to see if you've never seen it. Their little bodies are emaciated. They're nothing but skin and bones. Their legs are crossed, their arms are crossed, their hands are bent and they can't move. And they spend all day lying in a bed or on a mat. But if you go down and you pick them up and you hold them in your arms and you speak to them and sing to them, their faces light up. There's nothing wrong with their facial muscles. And you can see the incredible joy that they have just being loved and not being left alone. That's more important than providing the food and the wheelchairs and the other things that they need. And every time we take a team down, that happens. People say to me constantly, well, you know, I've never been among the disabled. I don't think I could handle it. I don't have any training. I don't know what to do. And I say to them, well, can you love? And they say, well, yeah, I think I can do that. And I say, you're qualified. I take them down and they love and they receive love in return. And that's where the joy comes from. That's incredible. That's um yeah, that's good. I, um, <laughs> I'm a little like that, that, um, had me a little emotional there. So excuse me. Um, I'm going to take you down there one day and you'll see what I mean. I would <laughs> love that. I really would. Um, the, the last question that I had for you, because the podcast is geared towards young, young people. And you mentioned that you've um, had young teams come and, and had, uh, and worked with young people, of course, is, what would be your advice to someone coming out of, you know, coming out of COVID and, and all of this happening, assuming that everyone's um, not just staying at home, but what's your advice to them going out today after listening to this? What actions should they be taking to be making a difference in their world or in the people that they're interacting with lives? Well, I think the thing that I would want to emphasize is that every teenager, really should go on a short-term mission trip somewhere. They need to get out of this American materialism. They need to get away from their cell phones and all the stupid things that teenagers get tied up with today in our culture. They need to see how the rest of the world lives. They need to experience poverty, real poverty. They need to experience what people with disabilities or other types of problems are struggling with in this world. Hopefully, that will change them and knock the materialism right out of them. The people who don't have that experience frequently just go on into all kinds of foolish, wasteful lifestyles. Now, let me say that short-term missions are kind of a controversial issue in many ways, because long-term missionaries who have really paid the price say, well, wait a minute, we could do so much more if we had the resources that people spend on short-term missions. We find that people will spend, say, $1,500 for a week for their own personal experience, and it will move them, and they'll go back home and never give a penny to the ministry itself. We don't want that to happen. We want people to realize that the kind of long-term work which is going on requires support. So we've started asking people who come on our mission trips to give $500 towards our ministry. That's not a lot for what it costs, but that way they're invested in it. They learn the principle that it isn't just about me. It isn't just about my experience. I need to give back. 
And I hope that many of these people will find themselves drawn to lots of other different types of service ministries, whether it's in the United States or in another country. I don't know. I think there's so much value, and I'm glad you mentioned the controversy of short-term because I'm sure someone listening was thinking about that. And it is interesting because partnering the short-term mission trips with a long-term vision, long-term goal, I think is so valuable. And um, the way you explained it, where it's not only just them doing a short-term mission trip and learning from it and gaining the perspective, which is very important, but also realizing that there's something bigger than them going on, that they can be a part of something bigger, I think is so important. And I think that's what young people are craving is to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And so, but I really just appreciate all the thoughts you've shared, the conversation that we were able to, to have it, and your time today. Can I say one last thing? Absolutely. One thing that's unique about our approach is that we're not taking an American missionary and sending to a country and then trying to support them. We don't do that. We have Jamaicans doing the work in Jamaica, and we have Kenyans doing the work in Kenya. We are a funding organization trying to take the resources that God has raised up and as faithful servants use it as wisely as possible to make the biggest possible change. We could not do that if we didn't have close, trusting relationships with people in both countries. Wow, that is incredible. What a note to end on. I really appreciate it. That's, it's fantastic. I think the work you guys are doing is fantastic. I'm excited to be a part of it and to share this conversation with other people to hopefully get other people inspired by the work you're doing and, and to get involved and to really evaluate in their own lives, okay, how can I be taking action to help people just like what you guys are doing? Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you again next week. Thanks for listening to the Taking a Breath podcast with Parker Mays. 